Welcome to the Reverberations podcast. This series is curated and hosted by me, Zara Arshad, and made possible with funding and support generously provided by the Design History Society UK. Reverberations as an initiative was originally proposed in late 2018 as an events programme, a set of in-person conversations that would seek to address marginalisation, underrepresentation, and erasure in the UK's cultural and creative sectors. This group of talks was partly driven by my own harmful experiences of the fields in which I professionally practice, specifically museums, academia and design. While the podcast that you are currently listening to, a reincarnation of the aforementioned events programme, was developed throughout 2020, a year defined by COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, and the subsequent heightened energy of the important Black Lives Matter campaign, in addition to new surges in anti-Asian hate. As these happenings and more have been taking place around me, I have doubted the value of public discussion, querying how can we move beyond lip service and help to enact meaningful change. The exchanges that I have had mostly during lockdown with the brilliant group of individuals who feature in this series offer glimpses into the possibilities and imaginings of how such change might be achieved, such as through collectively creating new systems, building networks of care and empathy, and thinking more carefully about whose voices we choose to amplify. The works, ideas and approaches briefly encapsulated here have greatly informed my own thinking. I hope these recordings will be similarly useful for you. Organised around three key themes, institutions, divergent models, and decolonising design and culture, season one of the podcast broadly focuses on history making, particularly in relation to design history and design studies. The conversations that feature implicitly reflect on how and where our histories have conventionally been told and who gets to tell them through considering the work and experiences of BIPOC peers and colleagues who have navigated, continue to navigate, and frequently resist institutional structures and frameworks in varying ways. Our next speaker is Tanvir Ahmed, a PhD researcher with the Open University UK. Tanvir is also a visiting tutor for the Royal College of Arts History of Design programme, as well as for cultural studies at Central St. Martins University of the Arts, London. Her long-term aspiration, which can be traced through both her PhD studies and teaching practice, entails contributing to alternative fashion design educational paradigms by generating new anti-racist, post-capitalist and pluriversal agendas. Welcome, Denvir, and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for the invitation, Zara. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you and really excited that these conversations are happening because, as you said, my research emerged from teaching fashion design for a long time. I was teaching from early 2000s and I was frustrated with how the dominant canon was in fashion, but also found it difficult to really think about what I could do about it. And rolling onto a PhD programme gave me that space to really experiment and to carry out some 
experiments really in fashion design pedagogies that seek to think about how we can have more inclusive forms of um, fashion design education. So yeah, great that we're talking about these topics today. Yeah, I'm similarly very excited to discuss, you know, your work with you, both your PhD um, investigations, your studies, as well as your teaching practice. But you've also been involved in a number of initiatives that have explored decolonial practices and approaches, including with the Royal College of Art, the RCA Student Union, as co-equalities representative for the university and college union, also at the RCA, in addition to sitting on the decolonizing the curriculum steering group at Westminster University. So can you perhaps start by telling us a little bit more about these roles and this work? Yeah. So when I started my PhD, it set out really to explore the ways that race and ethnicity was represented in the fashion design process, because I wanted to, I needed, it's not that I just wanted, but I needed to have some data to show that the observations I had been seeing for the previous 20 years were true that I saw these racist representations in students' work and they were a reflection of the Western canon in fashion. So I was doing my research, but as I continued doing that research, I started to test out different ways, um, alternative ways that challenge the Eurocentric canon in fashion. And as I started to do those, I, I could only kind of go so far and I started to see the importance of trying to use other spaces in the university institution. So at the Royal College of Art with students, I co-facilitated women and non-binary people of colour reading group. And that space is, I believe it's the only space in the Royal College where students of all different disciplines across all different programmes from the graduate diploma through to PhD study can come together along identity lines for sure, but they can come there and they can think about alternative, non-Eurocentric, non-racist art and design pedagogical practices and artists and designers work. So it's really from seeing the power of having a group that was existing beyond the curriculum that I started to become more interested in what other spaces are there that we can use in these higher education institutions that can help implement change, not just the curricula, because the curricula is top down. It's very expert driven. And these ideas go against the ideas of decolonial theory. So I became interested in the work of the UCU, the lecturers union. And last year I was elected as co-equalities rep. And this has been a really important learning curve for me, learning how through a collective, you can also implement change. We recently ran an anti-racist art and design pedagogies event with the union work. And this has also led to me being invited onto the, as you said, the decolonizing the curriculum steering group at Westminster University, where I'd also do some other work. Also just locally, I live in North London, I also am involved in our local Barnet Stand Up to Racism group 
and see that it's really important to make connections with local communities as well. So some of the research that I've been doing in my PhD, I think it's important to take outside of the institution now. Um, so we've held a specific event around libraries and around kind of the reading list in local secondary schools, trying to address some of the long-standing issues around dominant white male authors on the curriculum. So it's really moved from being a very, in many ways, conventional PhD to being a lot more activist-led and thinking about what we can do, what I can do to help change happen. Yeah, I mean, I think these all sound like really promising um, initiatives. And I think, as you say, moving beyond academia, going outside of these spaces that we usually occupy, I think is really important. But I just want to kind of come back to some other examples that you've just touched on. You mentioned, for example, that you set up the women and non-binary people of colour reading groups, so creating these spaces outside of the curriculum for discussion. I'm also aware that you've worked with some of your students, prompting them to look at absences in academic libraries, so you can kind of see this continuation of, you know, being critical around some of the resources that we use. Similarly, you've asked PhD researchers to undertake an audit of their own bibliographies, pinpointing any biases within that. Can you give us more of an insight into some of the aims and the results of these undertakings and what has been the response like from a student perspective, if you can kind of speak to that? Of course, yeah, that's a very good question. I think that as I continued with the research I was doing, I could see that looking at the resources was critical to really looking at racist biases in fashion design and the teaching of fashion design. So the academic library became a very important place. And going into the academic library, if you do an audit of the bookshelves, you can immediately see where the biases are. I know this, I've spotted this for a long time, but I thought it was important that fashion students um, should know this and all design students should know this because the library is often seen as this neutral place, but the fact is it isn't neutral. There's a particular classification system, which means that certain books are given a category on the shelves in ways that other books aren't um, through the Dewey Decimal System. And there's a long history of librarians addressing these concerns. And I was really surprised that I didn't know about this. So there are so many ways in the higher education that we are all separated. And when I did the project with the academic head of library at the Royal College of Art, she told me that in 16 years, no academic had ever approached her to do a project jointly, that she'd always felt that she was probably looked on as being a technician, as being somebody just purely does a technical task of finding books, retrieving them, but not actually somebody who has a great deal of knowledge that can contribute to actually teaching. So we also, the work I did with the librarian, Cathy Johns, we then took that to a conference and presented a joint paper 
on decolonising design history at the Conference for Art and Design Librarians called ARLIS. So it's been really, you know, incredible to find that there are lots of people doing this work in our higher education institutions, but we're often separated. So getting people together, working as a collective, I think is one of the key insights that I've learned from doing this work, that this isn't work to do alone. And also there are so many of us thinking about these things. You know, it's not expert driven work. Many of us are, have already have had these conversations about the Western bias, the global North bias in design and in all subjects. It's just that we've had those conversations in the corridor or in the canteen or just on the steps of college or we've moaned about it, but we haven't actually been actively creating sufficient spaces to have these conversations. So I think getting collectives together is a key insight from my research so far. I'm curious, you know, because we're kind of emerging out of our third national lockdown and the past year or so has thrown up all sorts of challenges, but also opportunities in relation to access to resources, academic resources. So on the one hand, physical libraries have been mostly closed, but then digital resources have in some sense opened up, in other senses not. How have you seen this impact what is represented or what is accessible through these kinds of institutions or through library repositories? That's Yeah, that's really interesting, Zara. I think that in my own research as well, when I'm looking through library catalogues, Obviously, there's a wide range of books that we can see through a library catalogue and having to look on the catalogues means that you're able to see a wider range of things rather than just what happens to be on the shelf on that day. But saying that, there's still a particular skill in how you navigate those systems. So the systems are still they're still set up in ways that certain books will be prioritised over other books. And this is also the issue with who gets to even get published. So there's a big campaign and drive within publishing to have more black and brown authors, because at the moment, many authors don't get published just because there aren't other books already on that topic. So you're caught in a vicious cycle. You know, even if you get onto the catalogue, you still see that there's certain books that are always given more value or certain authors who dominate um, certain topics. And, you know, there are many cultures in the world we know that don't have oral traditions. So, you know, there aren't even books written on certain topics. So doing some of my own research where I wanted to bring in ideas around non-Western garments and I use the sari not because I think the sari is particularly special but because the sari has value in that it's a non-Western garment and but I I didn't find lots and lots written about it actually There, there is quite a bit compared to other garments but you know it represented my own family heritage so yeah, it's, it's still an uphill struggle, I think. And when I'm teaching students, for them to find resources can still be really difficult. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously I can only really speak from my perspective, but I'm also thinking about this in relation to, you know, you mentioned the Dewey Decimal System, how these publications and materials are catalogued, but I'm also thinking of this now when we speak of digital resources in relation to, for example, coding, what kind of keywords one puts into the catalog, into the the online catalog, and what publications are subsequently returned as part of the search results. I think that is quite an interesting process. And then also in relation to, to language, how we find materials that might not be in the English language and yeah, how we kind of locate those resources. I don't know if that's ever been a challenge that you've had to address or overcome in your own research process. Well, interestingly, the project I did with students at the Royal College of Art Library was very simple. It just got them to do some content analysis of a sample of books. And interestingly, there were some books that weren't in the English language in the library. So there are often surprises. It's just that those books were, they were, I think they were books written in, I think they were written in Mandarin, but they were donated by somebody and they were very large books and they were hidden away on a shelf that was quite far back that nobody knew about so I think there are lots of issues going on here that we need to kind of take apart but I think the knowledge is out there it's how do students get to that knowledge how do they access that knowledge and the dominant is still for a small group of publishers and the canon in each particular design discipline so in fashion there is a particular canon and we're it's exciting times though we're getting people who are really challenging those canons and challenging the underpinning Eurocentrism so it is an exciting time too. Yeah it's interesting to get an insight into how you and your students are kind of navigating this um, particularly in relation to the RCA library so I did my master's at the RCA but actually throughout much of my life as a researcher I've actually depended on the SOAS library you know which offers a number of resources in various different languages so it is interesting to kind of get your insight and input around that having said that though reconsidering the epistemological frameworks the frames of reference that we use in design teaching is key to decolonizing work it's certainly part of it arguably there is more to decolonizing than this and of course you've already spoken about the work that you've done on the various different committees with UCU as well but what would you say in response to this statement that I've just made? Yeah I think that it's important to think about the epistemological frameworks and frames of reference and I think this is where thinking about really going to the roots of a decolonizing approach to design is so important about and where I think the feminist research becomes really important here because we start to think about relationality, we start to think about human relationships, we start to think about how the personal is political and how everyday experiences should be centered in our work and be made to feel important, you know, 
that's why doing research, which you might not find some, it, it can be difficult because you might not find references in books and you've got to find ways to support your research. It can be quite tricky and it can be quite difficult. And also when you're doing research, which is my research, which I see very much as being activist-led research, I'm not setting out anymore to objectively prove that Eurocentrism exists. That's how I began. Now I'm setting out to say, well, how can we change it? What can we do about it? You know, come on this journey with me. And there are many different ways of doing it. And as I'm saying in a design school, often the student union do really exciting work. It's not in the curricula though, particularly at the Royal College of Art, it's got a long history of having a very radical student union. You've done lots of interesting work. And often, arguably, you could say a lot of the work that they are doing, addressing things from Black Lives Matter, Islamophobia, is more cutting edge than what's happening on certain project briefs and curricula. So we need to find ways of sharing this knowledge and seeing that curricula and books alone isn't going to help us out of this situation. Certainly I'm I'm also wondering about that transition though between you know the work that the union does and then how one might translate that in terms of your teaching practices. So to give you a very micro example when I studied the master's history of design program at the RCA one of the very first tasks that we did was a tour that was led by the senior tutor at the time and so we were based at the Victoria and Albert Museum that's where our course rooms were situated and we were taken down into the public galleries and shown around the various different quote-unquote Asia galleries so these galleries are bound by nation frames Um, So there's a Japan gallery, a China gallery, Korea, South Asia, that's more regional rather than national, as well as the Islamic Middle East, also in quotation marks. And so through this activity, you know, we were prompted to think about the wider structure of the V&A in this case. So have any of your own teaching practices or approaches also reflected on, for example, the history of the RCA? Obviously, the RCA and the V&A are closely intertwined. So have you kind of reflected on that history at all? I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm not sure in if I've done it kind of very specifically. However, it does crop up quite a lot because obviously the history of the RCA and the V&A, as you say, entwined. And they go back to the Great Exhibition of 1851. And this is really important. So a lot is written about the Great Exhibition of 1851, this important exhibition, which was showing the world how big and how important the British Empire was and how much of the world it was owning and running and how great the monarchy was and we know that you know as soon as you come out of the college you have gleaming gold Prince Albert facing you the college still has the royal in its name so these things are intertwined it's very important for students to recognize that so it does come up in work and many of our big institutions in the UK are having these difficult conversations at the moment based on their history so particularly as we know around 
museums and for example the National Trust is having this very conversation at the moment where they've identified 93 of their um, stately homes that have links to the slave trade and these things are important for students to know about when they're situated in these buildings like where did these buildings emerge from what's the history of them so back to your question explicitly I haven't done a question like that but it does crop up definitely when you're in these buildings for sure so I mean coming back to you know we've kind of rewinded into history and now kind of coming back to the present you're mentioning you know about these bigger institutions I'm kind of zooming out um, in my head right now, and just thinking about the ridiculous race report, which alleges that there is no racism in the UK, and that this was recently released. So we're now in a situation where this report has been released, but alongside this, there have also been calls, for instance, to integrate more Black history into UK school curriculums. Can you perhaps speak to these broader contexts in relation to your own advocacy work, if you don't mind me calling it that? No, that's fine. I mean, I think the most worrying thing about the UK report into race, I think, was summed up by Doreen Lawrence, who is the mother of the murdered Stephen Lawrence. And she said this report gives the green light to racists because they can all say now that, oh, it doesn't exist. Racism isn't in our institutions. We've said goodbye to that period of time. But this was the very reason I started my PhD. For me, there were people like that in the fashion and design community who, when I began, because I'm doing my PhD part-time over six years, when I began six years ago and I gave presentations, people would put their hand up and say to me, words to the effect of I don't believe you I don't think there is racism in fashion design fashion is this really celebratory discipline where you know we want to look at other cultures we're very outward looking we are the best out of all the other design disciplines because you know we're really opposite lots of us are gay lots of us are really open-minded so no we don't believe you And it feels like with this race report that we're going back to that time again, because the work that I've been doing and trying to, first of all, say, look, here's some proof, here's some research that shows that there is racial bias in how we represent different cultures in fashion. And also now we know that that exists what can we do about it but this race report if they say there is no institutional racism then how are we going to ever move beyond that and try to do the real work of trying to address that institutional racism so my hope with many others last week there was a letter which gained 20,000 signatures in over 48 hours asking the government to denounce the report Uh, My hope is that that does happen because it's a very dangerous time if the report is used as a way to shut down conversations because we'll be going back definitely um, rather than trying to think about ways to tackle racism. No, definitely. I mean, it's definitely positive to see 
you know, this reaction, the signatures that were amassed, the resistance to that, and just to kind of echo your sentiment, yeah, I really kind of hope that they do U-turn on this. It seems to be our current government's fashionable approach to policy, so let's hope they follow through (laughs) on this U-turn. But as you were talking, I just wanted to pick up, you know, on some of the language and terminology that you've been using in preparing for this podcast, we've had discussions around terminology, specifically using, for example, the word decolonization, decolonizing alongside anti-racist. Can you perhaps outline or address the subtle differences between the two, but also how terminology can actually affect the kinds of conversations that we have? Lovely. Thank you for raising that, Zara. I can only talk from my own personal thinking on this. I know there are great scholars who've written about these things. But for me, when I began my PhD and started to look into decolonial theory and saw the usefulness of it, that was great. But I also started to use anti-racism probably more frequently because I saw it as having a long history that kind of says what's happening, you know, anti-racist racism. To me, it says, okay, we're addressing the fact racism exists and we're doing work that's against that. Whereas the reason I think that possibly decolonizing initiatives have gathered greater co-option, it could be because it doesn't have that resonance here. And in the UK, we don't have that same history of decolonizing as other countries we don't have the same kind of colonial settler communities that exist in Australia North America Canada for example Um, because we don't have those conversations because we were the country that was actually going out and doing the colonial settling so I think that because of that there is a different history that's very particular to the UK And I think that anti-racism probably, for me anyway, has more resonance here than decolonising in the UK. So that's why it's become a more useful term for me to use. And particularly we had in the 80s in the UK, a lot of work around anti-racism. We had some very progressive councils who were doing work around anti-racism. You had, for example, in London, black and brown artists producing public art. It was very exciting, short-lived period of time, but there were things like that happening. And so when you tap into using that word anti-racism, for many people, they have a history of that that comes in their head in the way that decolonizing might not in the UK, but certainly decolonizing in the global South will have a much stronger resonance, I think. So. I'd like to hear more discussion about this. And I think that often when I go to talks and workshops and conferences, I like to raise this question as well, because I think it's really important. Why do some academics use the word decolonizing and not anti-racism and vice versa? I think there should be more clarity on it and particularly in design, because we need to be one step ahead of the powers that be and recognize the co-option of these terms and that's not to say anti-racism doesn't get co-opted of course you know it gets co-opted in the same way but 
we do have to think about our context and the UK's context in being this history of empire and imperialism is um, crucial to how we use these terms here. When you've kind of raised the question around which term to use and how to use it, for example, you mentioned in conference spaces, you have asked this question. Have you noticed a difference between generations as well? I mean, you've mentioned, for example, geographic placement. So us being the UK, maybe those that are situated either in the global south or in these territories that have settler colonialist histories. But yeah, has there been a difference in generations, how they use terminology that might not necessarily have in their memory the 80s? Um, although, of course, you know, they can read up on the literature or discourse that emerged during that time, but they may not have their own embodied memories of that period. Have there been any kind of discrepancies or I don't know if that's the right word, but differences in generational thinking? Yeah, no, I think that's a, um, a good question. I haven't noticed particularly because I think that I've been to some workshops where we've been discussing this question, for example, but I have noticed since BLM that anti-racism has been used more and it's had more resonance and a lot of activists seem to be using it and yet you seem to see in academic spaces more of the word decolonial being used and it's often I've noticed with work around the union it tends to be anti-racism and decolonizing seems to be something that's very specific to academic spaces at the moment but these are just observations ultimately those of us who are doing this work we're all working towards the same goals we're all trying to kind of find ways to look for more equality a more inclusive society and the more you look into it for me it's been that you have to make more and more connections so student fees for example I believe we shouldn't have student fees and so it's very hard to disconnect that from decolonial work if you want to have a fairer design canon that's more responsive to the whole world and to the histories of empire and imperialism then you want to have that sort of space in the classroom if you want to have that sort of space in the classroom then you want to have more access to that space if you want to have more access to that space we shouldn't have fees so it, you, you know you find yourself finding more and more threads to do this work because it's the process that's incredibly important it's not just some module on decolonial theory or decolonizing methodologies because all you do is reproduce an alternative canon and that's not what the work should be about the work should be about how do we work towards having a better society and address terrifying things like climate change you know we can't do that work if we have a canon that is patriarchal and capitalist that answers so many indigenous communities looked after the planet for millennia and in the last 200 years it's it's not been a good picture so we need to connect these dots I think and urgently as well 
No, definitely. I think, you know, there are so many different layers to peel away, which brings me, I suppose, to my final question is, well, where do we go from here then? What tools and networks do we build moving forward? Do you even believe that we can decolonize design studies um, in the broadest sense of practice theory, history? Yeah, what are your thoughts around that? I think we can start shifting the conversations and I think there's a real appetite in design studies for shifting the conversation. I mean, there are people, that this is still a, a marginalised conversation. It's still not a big mainstream conversation. We're not seeing a rush to have race and art and design as a department in art schools. But my hope is that that's the sort of picture that we get but more broadly, the bigger project to decolonise design studies, in my opinion, is going to have to move outside of the art college, really. I think back often to what option I would take now, being 18 or 19, going to art college now. And I don't think I would have gone to art college now. I was fortunate to go to college when there weren't any fees. But I think now I'm not sure if I would go and the sort of fashion that I was interested in when I started studying, there were still very much ideas around subcultures. There were still more opportunities for working class students to get into art school. I don't know if that picture is still the same now. I don't think it is. I think it's harder for working class students to get into college. I think it's harder to afford college. I think if we want to have these conversations, a lot of the interesting work is being done outside of these institutions. So I'm not sure how much I would have gone to art school now. I loved it when I went, but maybe not now. So I think that open source courses and learning online, these sorts of things, maybe the future, maybe lots more designers will start being established who haven't necessarily been through the college system but until we still have Oxford Street as busy as it was the day before yesterday when we're talking now it was the end of that phase of lockdown and it was completely packed there we've still got a real worry the capitalism triumphed rather there so we've got to really think about how we're going to clothe people sustain people's interest in their clothing and think about sustainable ways of caring for the planet and teaching students with compassion and with kindness and that's a lifetime job so have you come across you know you mentioned open source courses have you come across any alternative models or ways of doing things even if they're in their early beginnings that you think are promising that could be a framework for moving forward? I think that there are more and more available courses. I know in fashion that I've contributed to a FutureLearn course recently that's going to come out soon. So I think that there are more and more opportunities. And I just think YouTube, you know, I've got young kids and they, they learn so many things on YouTube (laughs) they're so more skillful than um, I could ever think of being at their young age just by learning different art and craft skills actually just off the internet so I think that might be something 
positive that comes out of the lockdown that a lot of people have been accessing free courses and doing work that way but we still have the problem of a dominant western canon that gets to describe and run what gets seen as legitimate knowledge and what isn't legitimate knowledge so there is still a project to establish non-western ways of learning and knowing in the academy that is still always going to be a project and hopefully with conversations as well around anti-racism work you can kind of be pushing bottom up through grassroots activism the student-led activism and that will really change things I think that the student-led activism is going to be the way things will change I don't think just people doing little bits of projects here and there are going to change things I think it will be student power that will do it I think well, hopefully we'll have many student listeners <laughs> that will take on that call to drive forward that change. And on that note, then, Vera, I, I think that's a, a really good way to wrap up the conversation. Just to kind of end by saying thank you so much for spending some time this evening speaking with me and for sharing your thoughts, your ideas, and for contributing to the Reverberations podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Sarah. I think that it's really important that you're doing this work and that we keep the conversation as alive as possible, because that's the biggest fear that these conversations don't get heard. And we've got to just keep, keep speaking about these topics, I think, and remind people that there are so many other ways of knowing and learning about design and we should be celebrating them. We don't have to just celebrate the ones that have got the books and the long histories in Western institutions, higher education institutions, that there are lots of other knowledges and we should be exploring them, particularly the knowledge that our students bring into the classroom. One of the big things that spurred me on was I would be teaching fashion and generally it would be an Asian student would come up to me and they'd say, look, I know how a pattern cut. Why do we have to learn this kind of pattern cutting? In, in fashion, we use this book called the Winifred Aldrich Metric Pattern Cutting Book. And I'd be like, no, you've, you've got to. And they'd be like, but, but why? And I'd be like, well, it's because that's what's in the curricula. And they'd be like, but why? And, you know, th- this conversation would carry on. I taught in a lot of inner city further education colleges for a long time. And they would be laughing and they would just be like, why am I having to do it this way? I know how my grandma, my auntie, everybody's taught me how to make clothing from a young age and I know how to do it. But, you know, I don't know why I have to learn Winifred Aldrich's method. And um, so it was quite funny that. But, you know, after hearing that conversation year on year and trying to explain this to my department who weren't particularly interested you know, it becomes really depressing. So the students, so many communities, people have the knowledge and they need to be able to bring it into the classroom. So it's not just always this top-down academic who's teaching. We need to rethink that pedagogical process so that we share knowledge and God forbid the lecturer might learn something from their students too. Thank you. I think that's a really nice note to end on. Thank you once again. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, 
please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever platform it is that you use to access your podcasts. This will help other listeners to find us. With special thanks to Davinia Gregory, Ellie Michaela Young and Mega Rajguru for their continued support and guidance. Jenna Alsop for editing season one of the Reverberations podcast and Claire O'Mahony, chair of the UK Design History Society for championing this work.